Welcome to Chapter 2 of HealthSystemCIO.com's interview with Chuck Christian, VP of Technology and Engagement with the Indiana Health Information Exchange. In this segment, Christian talks about how Indiana is tapping outside resources to more effectively analyze social determinants of health, why he believes we need to change our perception of interoperability, and the liability concerns that come with incorporating outside data. HealthSystemCIO.com podcasts are sponsored by Improvada, the healthcare IT security company ranked number one by class for secure messaging and single sign-on. For more information, visit their website at Improvada.com. Interesting stuff, and it's something that, you know, ideally I think every organization is going to want to be able to do, but it's, uh, as is often the case, getting all those steps in place first. Right, and I think that we need to learn. Uh, Brian Dixon, who is a uh, researcher at the Indiana School of Public Health, and uh, he also uh, has a, a joint seat at the Ringer Street Institute, He's, he did some work last year, I believe, or the year before, about geocoding, uh, geomapping, you know, clinical data around and, and with some social determinants of health to see if he could identify uh, where the need might be for resources around public health. And I think that's a, a, another really good opportunity for us to do is start looking at these multiple data sets we have uh, and being able to uh, make those determinations. And I, I'll give you an example. The, the Indiana chapter of HIMSS this year was the host chapter for the Midwest Conference, uh, which all the, the states in the Midwest get together and do this uh, every year. And one of the things that we have in Indiana, we have this thing called the MPH, or the Management Performance Hub. Uh, it's uh, just recently got codified by the Indiana State Legislature. And it's, it's, I don't know if you want to call it a department of the governor's office, but that seems to be where they, they live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're gathering data from a variety of state agencies and creating a a data repository. And so one of the things that they were willing to do is they created 25 different de-identified data sets, and we had kind of a data-a-thon, if you will, mm-hmm. where uh, we asked the students uh, for the various universities and some of the uh, professional groups, you know, companies in town to take a look at these 25 data sets uh, and they were grouped in two categories. One was data visualization, and the other one was data analytics. You know, look at the data sets and see what you can determine of those. And so uh, it was really interesting to see what these groups of, you know, really bright folks, particularly the students, mm-hmm. uh, came up with. And we had two winners. One was uh, a local company that helps employers manage their own you know, employee population around health, and they also do uh, clinics in some of the larger employers and stuff. They did a data visualization, which I thought was extremely interesting uh, to help that population of folks you know, kind of get a view of you know, what, health, what is happening with health care for those populations. But the other one I, I found is equally as interesting is uh, a piece of analytics that uh, a group of graduate students did they took the opioid population of de-identified data that was presented, overlaid that with where mental health services and treatment services are in the state of Indiana, mm-hmm. and they very quickly were able to identify a region of Indiana that was underserved. Oh, wow. Uh, and so uh, those are the type of things that we should be able to do with this kind of this level of data. 
yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be identified. You know, it, it can be de-identified and you start looking at, you know, where services need to be, what services, you know, where the patient populations are that uh, could benefit from another clinic or are we putting our limited dollars we have to spend in public health in the right places. So I think that's where the, the data will help us visualize that and either confirm uh, or reaffirm that we're, uh, we're in the right spots or help us shuffle that stuff around. Yeah. yeah you know, it, really... It, it really amazes me that, you know, with the, the, the healthcare resources and the technology resources we have in Indiana, of where we rank at the low end of the totem pole for a lot of the, the health stats uh, in the country. And there's some of the places we're at, you know, 38th and 41, uh, which is just absolutely insane to me. But mm-hmm. in looking at some of the data that Brian did is, you know, Indianapolis is a metropolitan area. And I was actually shocked to see that there were actually food deserts within the, what we call the metropolitan area of Indianapolis. Yeah. And part of that is related to the populations that are in those areas that may be elderly, don't have their own transportation, uh, you know, are at the most at-risk uh, groups of folks that uh, could be in a lower end of the socioeconomic uh, level. And it, because they, there's not a grocery store within a mile of where they live, somebody has to pick them up and take them to the grocery store. The, uh, somebody has to, you know, bring the groceries. And the same thing goes with drug stores. You know, yeah. I find it pretty amazing that as many pharmacies that I see on, you know, there looks like they're dueling on uh, different diagonal street corners, that there'll be places in Indianapolis that you don't have a pharmacy within a mile or two or three, and there are. And so, you know, us helping to determine where those challenges are around healthcare uh, is a really good way of using that information to, uh, to improve that care, particularly from uh, for the most vulnerable uh, pieces of our society. Right. Really interesting look at, at the power of data, and that's 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 a great example. You don't think of that in these metropolitan areas, but it's looking at other factors, and that's where I think this is going to get really interesting in the next few years. Well, I, mean, I think that's one of the interesting things that we're able to do here because we're pulling in data from uh, about 119 different facilities, and then we're all now getting more and more information from uh, physician practices, post-acute care, uh, and those type of things. And so it's not that we're looking at the data. Uh, we, we don't. That's not what our, our, our mission is. But we you know, curate that information uh, and it can be uh, made available appropriately for those kinds of studies. Uh, we do provide some services to the Indiana State Department of Health around syndromic surveillance, uh, around notifiable conditions and those type of things, and we're starting to have more conversation with them about how we can help with determining where those resources need to be. But once again, yeah, we're just the curators of the, the data uh, and if there's an, uh, a need to access that information, we'll take it to the management council and, and make sure that that information uh, is approved, that access to the information is approved. Right. And I feel like if I don't uh, bring up the lovely talk, topic of interoperability, I'm not doing sure. my job. But, <laughs> but there's always, always a lot to talk about. And we had just, just the other day, the, the White House held, held the uh, interoperability summit and, 
I guess you know the goal is to try to get answers, but there are some who, who, who think that there's too much focus on trying to figure out what's working for some organizations and you know expanding that out. And w- what are your thoughts on, on what they're trying to do with these type of uh, events? Well, I don't know. There was a large crowd. I think there were 35 people at the White House mm-hmm. uh, from a variety of organizations. They had the large corporations there, Microsoft and Google and those folks. Uh, Anish was there, Chopra, and you know some folks from the Karen Group. My boss, who's the CEO of, of our organization, was there. He's on the HEMS board as well. Oh, right. uh, he's also on the board of uh, the Sequoia Project, and yeah, I think Mary Ann Yeager was there, and you know quite a few other folks that you know cover the the, the gambit of interoperability. And, and I guess the question for me is, I'm not really sure uh, exactly because I wasn't involved in in any of the conversations at all of what they're trying to accomplish, other than what I've read in Politico and you know some of the other uh, trade press, but. One of the things that just kind of gets on my nerves is when they say that, you know, I read an article that says, you know, interoperability is just not happening. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's really not true uh, for a variety of reasons. It depends on how you're going to define interoperability. I mean, if you're going to define it as is data flowing unencumbered without special effort from one EMR to the other, well, then that is true. That's not occurring for a variety of reasons. Yeah. It's not because nobody wants to share the information. It, I, I'm sure there are some cases of that uh, where people still believe their, their data has strategic value, which is more valuable than the impact upon patient outcomes. But the data is, it is being moved in a variety of ways. Yeah, I can tell you, you know, we, we handle millions of transactions each month that flow between organizations that we respond to queries from the eHealth Exchange for the VA and the SSA. We deliver millions of clinical messages to whoever they need to go to for our members. That's one of the services that we provide uh, for them, and we can deliver it in one of four different ways. And so, you know, are the EMRs able to uh, consume everything that we send to them? No. If you talk to some physicians, their practice is they don't want the data to come in automatically and load in their EMRs and jump into their workflows because they don't believe that they need to see everything. If they're a carbon copy or they're a CC, a courtesy copy because they're primary care, they're their patient's primary care because a specialist that they got referred to is seeing the patient, uh, it's, the assumption is that the specialist is going to, going to act upon that result, and it's just a courtesy copy to the primary care physician. So he, that's probably not something he wants to drop in his workflow because he or she did not order it themselves. Right. They want it to be in the patient's record. Uh, for uh, future reference, but as far as them being responsible for acting upon it, because if if you have all that data flowing into all the physicians, which could be carbon copied, it is possible that more than one physician is going to act upon it and create confusion about that patient's care. And so we haven't gotten to the level of coordination yet that we can make a determination of who's going to be 
it, it, in most cases, it's assumed that, that the physician who orders this, the test is going to be accountable for making sure that if need be, uh, the patient is treated based upon that test result if, it's, if it was abnormal. Right. So to me, the interoperability is happening every day. There, there are some places in the country that are rural that the physician may only have an opportunity to use direct, but that capability is, is available to them. In a lot of cases, and you know, a lot of people don't like to hear it, in some of the workflows and some of the physician practices, getting a fax, which will come into a fax server into their EMR, uh, and be reviewed and filtered by their nurse or one of their multi-skill workers to make a determination if the physician needs to see it or not, that meets their workflow. And that works yeah. well for them. And, you know, they don't really want to uh, to change that because it would, the old, little boy said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from an interoperability standpoint, you know, do we have some way to go? Absolutely. Because I think that up until the point that we can get more of this data into the workflow of the physician, that they don't have to go look for it, they don't have to go hunt it, and they can trust it. And uh, that's a a key thing we don't talk a lot about is the information that is is moving, is it from a trusted source? Right. can, Can the physician or the clinician uh, determine where that data came from in case they need to pick up the phone and and call somebody, the radiologist that read the chest x-ray or the CT scan or the uh, the CT scan of the head, you know, they need to be able to uh, trust that the information came from a source that they don't have to worry about if they're going to incorporate it into the EMR and becomes part of the patient's record. And the, and the other thing that we don't talk a lot about is that some physicians are concerned about is some of the liability that goes along with it because we're moving all this data around, but we're not thinking about what kind of potential liability that we may be causing because, the, you know, the tort reforms uh, mm-hmm. are not being modified to go along with this new mass of information. I had a, a conversation with a friend of mine, this is CEO of another facility, that that their medical staff is now starting to ask, okay, the information that we're, we're getting in electronically from other places and it's being incorporated into our medical record, do we need to act upon that uh, if we see something that is, is going to have an impact upon that, that patient's clinical outcome? And if we don't, and we don't know that it's there, even though it's in the record and it may very well be discoverable, what's our risk? And so, I mean, those are conversations that we're not having that will make people more cautious about what information is shared and how they use that information. And so I think we need to have those conversations as well. And I know the AMA has addressed part of this, so has AHIMA, uh, and we just need to resurrect those conversations and dust them off a little bit and make sure they're still valid, you know, from the paper world uh, into the electronic world. Yeah, and, and, you know, once you have those discussions, I guess it has to be ironed out more specifically who is responsible for the data, for, for the accuracy, for, for what's entered into there, and, you know, wh- where, does that, where does that responsibility lie? That, that's, a big, that's a big thing. Yep, absolutely. The thing about it is, is you can create as much confusion with no one acting upon something as well as more than one person acting upon something. And so we just need to, you know, figure that out. 
One of the things we've been able to do with, with high efficiency, and this goes back to my early computing days, it says, you know, if you want to create repeatable errors, have a computer do it, is that we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing every time. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done, of course. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.